This is Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. A new study says St. Petersburg's history is rife with policy and bias that has disproportionately harmed its black residents. What started as a quality of life study for African Americans in the city became a study on institutional racism. It details inequality and segregation going all the way back to the city's first black settler in 1868. In the wake of Dr. Martin Luther King Day, we're going to take a closer look at structural racism and what actions need to be taken to address it with two of the study's authors. Dr. Ruth May Sears is the study's lead investigator. She's an assistant professor at the University of South Florida and the lead faculty facilitator for its inclusive and equitable pedagogy program. And Gwen Reese is president of the African American Heritage Association of St. Petersburg. Right, so let's start with that study. Uh, the The new study says St. Petersburg's history is is just rife with institutional bias that disproportionately was aimed at its black residents. This goes back to the first black settlers back in the 1860s. And so I'd like to kind of start out with, if you could just give us a little history of what you're finding out in the study, and then we'll go into how it affects people today and really what can be done to rectify all this. Well, the history, um, the results found that Florida and St. Petersburg particularly aligned with the culture of segregated America in its foundational era. Nevertheless, those practices from racially biased policing, the KKK intimidations of Blacks, vagrancy laws and racial sentencing, lynching, disparities in um, the criminal legal system, segregational practices in the politics, and ultimately also economic opportunities, although they were built into the foundation, those decision makings early on subsequently influenced many of the normalcies that we see today. Hence, we realized the implications of policies and practices in developing the structure that impacts an individual's opportunity to enjoy life and also their opportunity to engage in all facets of success and in, within their community. And so when you think about even down to housing, we had redlining and you know challenges relative to endorsements because we talk about white flight when Blacks move into communities, um, their white counterparts would move out, which devalue property. And then we also talk about um, disruptions in the livelihood of individuals tied to um, Tropicana Field, the interstate development. So these decision makings have had negative impacts on we call it the overall quality of life for the African-American community in the St. Petersburg um, area. Ms. Gwen? Steve, I think it's real important. You mentioned the first African-American, and that was John Donaldson, and he settled on the uh, Pinellas Peninsula in 1868, uh, became a very respected member of the community. And what's very interesting, and I think it's worth noting that at that time, he was the only, his family was the only African-American family here. And so he did not face the racism or the segregation that came about later. He was well-respected in the community. His children were able to attend school with white children. It was only when there was an influx of African-Americans primarily to build the Orange Belt Railway did we see the policies and practices and laws that Dr. Sears just referred to as well as what you see in the report. And so I think that's very uh, worth noting. Well, let's talk about redlining here, the the practice of, of banks that shoehorned people into different sections of town. Tell us about the 
impact of this on the creation of wealth? Uh, it, it really had a, a negative impact on the black community, especially. Yes, redlining had multiple implications, especially when we think about efforts to support generational wealth, because property value and also who do you get to network with? Because your schools and your look is tied to your location, which ties to your affiliations, and so it's actually a rippling effect. And so this practice of this area not being funded or even getting opportunity to be funded, that in itself restricted where you can and cannot live. And when you look at the map from the 30s, where they actually restricted it for Negroes only, um, fast forward to 2021, that area is still predominantly um, populated by Black populace. Hence, these disparities still exist based on decisions that were made almost over 70 years ago. So these decisions have implications to your ability to generate wealth, your um, ability to network with um, individuals who can help you catalyze your wealth, and also, too, um, relative to your own professional identities that can excel, allow you to excel beyond the barriers that were created before your era. Mrs. Quinn, you want to respond to that? And Steve, even with a good credit score and a higher income, African-Americans are still denied. And, and I think we need to talk about it's much more than just mortgages. Even redlining was much more than just where you lived. It was where you could own and operate a business. So African-Americans were not able to own and operate businesses outside of the segregated areas that were designated for us to live. And so today we still see issues with that as it relates to entrepreneurs uh, wanting to start up a business and the difficulties that they have in getting loans for their business or even the rates sometimes that are charged for the, the particular structures that they want to operate their businesses in. So redlining affected more than just housing. It also affected the, the opportunity for African-Americans to have businesses outside of the Black communities. However, they did have businesses within the community that thrived until interstate 275 and the Tropicana Dome displaced those people, those businesses in those neighborhoods. Well, well there's a lot of negative energy out there, as you, as you know. You're battling, you know, not just the current trends, but history. How do you get over, and this is probably more aimed at, at, at you, Gwen, uh, how do you get over that mental block from some people that, well, everything's okay, I don't need to change the way I do things? I think part of the problem in this country is the denial of the history of this country. It's been whitewashed, it's omitted, it's not being taught, and now we're seeing greater and greater efforts to prevent the teaching um, today even more than ever. But um, I think so many people are basing their thoughts, their perceptions, their uh, ideals, everything that, that they are doing is based on not knowing the history. So I think the history is very important. We talk about changing hearts and minds. I'm not so sure if I um, if I agree with changing hearts anymore, but I really do agree with changing minds. And the way we do that is by educating people and presenting the facts. Everybody will not be open to that. There will still be denials. Some people will um, actually say this is think. <laughs> However, we will be able, I believe, to, uh, to educate the general citizens about not only the history, but about how it's still impacting 
today. And also, I think it's very important for people to know that this this is not a zero-sum game. It is not if we uh, treat everyone fairly, then this is going to cost us something. We have to help people to understand that we all gain from this. We all progress from this. We all benefit from this. So I think, you know, so long in America, it's been sort of that thinking, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Everybody has the opportunity. If someone gets something, I lose something. So we have a lot of work to do. This is by no means an easy process that we're undertaking at all. There's so many arms to this, so many pieces to this that will need to be addressed. However, if we don't start then we will never make any progress and we'll never get there. And I want to extend, because Ms. Gwen provided so much rich nuggets of truth relative to education. Because when we think about history in itself, we have to think about the context, the content, the culture, but the climate. And so when we think about this context, really, what are we looking at? The, se- the segregated norm? Are we looking at it as an opportunity to inject changes and really make systemic approaches to um, and amplify the quality of life of the individual? What is the context we want to really amplify? And I think what was critical is we acknowledge the disparities that was evident in South St. Petersburg. The city, um, the city of St. Petersburg was willing to own the um, challenges of the past, but they their goal of that context was to move forward. And so that needs to be amplified in how the narrative is being told. And then also, too, what is the content? It wasn't just they wanted to hear another sad story. They wanted to really hear the recommendations to make changes to make it better. And then when you think of further relative to the culture, the culture was... We have right before us change before our eyes. We have a black mayor. We have a diverse um, city council. We have representatives who can speak across these spaces and promote equitable opportunities. And then really think about what is the culture, this culture relative to equity and justice, the culture relative to hope and possibilities, this culture relative to really thinking about ways to amplify a united America. And so with this notion of education, really capitalizing on the timing itself. And so I think the narrative has to really bring into the extent that culture, the climate, the context, and the content. And by putting it all together, the city, like I said, should be commended for their willingness to move forward. It was bold, it was courageous, but it was also hopeful. And that is notable. Well, hopefully we'll start with the minds and move on to the hearts. Let's let's talk about the St. Pete study particularly right now. Um, the city council said they were going to form a committee to address the findings when it was done. Now, where is that in the process right now? That's a good question. So they currently recently transitioned um, leadership. So this is where we talk about continued effort because history wasn't changed, like I said, in a split second, but it took time. So the ideals that we celebrate Martin Luther King, you know, took... 50 years, you know, for us to get here. And so many things take time. And this is where we need to continue to advocate for justice, um, amplify um, important work that needs to be done, but also really think about systemic efforts that we all could collectively do to do our part together, Neil for. For example, uh, the study who look at it holistically, but some persons may be in religion thinking about how could they really address structural racism within their religious spaces. Um, others in higher education at the collegiate level, we can actually think about making our communities better and really disrupt and dismantle structural racism that has negatively impacted marginalized identities. Or even thinking about relative to 
the business corporation, you know, examining our policies and practices, who we hire, what is the experience of our customers, and really thinking about how could we broaden our participation across spaces. So I think if everyone started to really think about what they could do individually, collectively, you would notice noticeable changes. And this is where perhaps even thinking about various change frameworks that could be employed to really target particular entities, be it from the individual level to the group level, but really thinking about what are the actionable items and a data dashboard, a change dashboard is going to be critical. Really monitoring how fast are we moving and what are we moving on and what still needs to be done? Because you asked a good question, where are they? And this goes back to who's monitoring the movements. So that's something for us, I mean, perhaps to start thinking about how are we using a change dashboard to really monitor um, growth over time, but also using the data to inform practices as they move forward. And I think it's so important that we made the study available. And we want your listening audience to know the study is available. And I'll go back to Dr. Sears in a minute to tell you exactly where you can find the study, because it wasn't produced for, to sit on a shelf, or as Dr. Sears said, to wait for a city government to do something. We all have a role. And I was I smiled when she mentioned the role of the church, because I received a call from Pastor Andy Oliver a couple of weeks ago, wanting to know if it was okay uh, for him to use the study in his sermons over the next seven weeks with his congregation. They were making copies of the entire study available to every member of the congregation. And for the next seven weeks, they, he is taking a section of the study and, and talking and educating his congregation from the pulpit. So there are many ways uh, for individuals to begin to do work as Dr. Sears said. So it's uh, that's why we encourage people to read the study. Uh, to learn the history, but also to see the recommendations and come up with their own ideas about how to use it in their churches, in their schools, in their businesses, wherever they live, work, and play. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue with our look at a new study that outlines how racism and inequity has plagued St. Petersburg's Black community. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. We're taking a closer look into a new study on how St. Petersburg's history is rife with bias that has disproportionately harmed its black residents and what actions need to be taken to address it. We're speaking with Dr. Ruth May Sears and Gwen Reese, two of the study's authors. I'd like to ask you all if you've any surprises, the reactions that people gave to the study. What have you been hearing? I mean, was it what you expected or any kind of curveballs out there people are throwing? With all the positive response that, that we've received, we are not naive. And we know that there will be resistance um, to the study. I'm absolutely not on social media, have not been for over a year and a half. So I'm not sure if there have been um, negative uh, remarks or resistance or um, related to the study, but we know that it is there uh, because that is 
the country we live in, but that's also very normal for human beings. We all have differing opinions about things. Um, so a lot of the positive response we've gotten, we are tremendously appreciative of that, but that's almost like preaching to the choir. Those were people who were already understanding and knowing. It's not that it's not helpful. Yes, it is, because this provided them an additional resource and some tools for them to advance the work they've already been doing. But we really need to reach those people who are not in the choir. We really need to reach those people who will be resistant. We really want to have those conversations as difficult as they may be. We need to reach the people that we haven't been reaching. And so one of the things that we talked about in one of our last meetings that our next step is to get that study out there in the community, have conversations, invite people to the table virtually, as far as I'm concerned, to, to, uh, to throw darts at it, to ask questions, to give us a chance to respond, to open that dialogue, because we may be able to change minds. It's great with the people who are already there on, you know, with us, we need to really get out there and we're not sure how to do that. So your listeners may have wonderful opportunities and ideas. World Cafes is a way, but we want to get it out there so people can then talk and question it and we can dive deep into it and address some of their fears, their concerns, their misconceptions. The feedback was overwhelmingly, I mean, generally positive for individuals who reached out and their willingness to engage. And that is encouraging because when you read about history, particularly civil rights, you'd realize change cannot be done solely by the Black community, but it was collaboration between the Blacks and the whites and other members of the community that stood together hand in hand to say, this is wrong. We need to do better as the United States of America. And I think even when we listen to the presentation, thinking about the Women's League who came out and speak, they were our white counterparts. And that is notable that, you know, we're talking across races, we're talking across groups, but it goes back to my foundational positionality. As I always say, I speak to humanity. And I think it was important to me to see humanity being amplified. And that's so critical. And I think it was really encouraging to see people's willingness to move us forward and have those conversations or even persons following up to say, hey, I'm trying to develop a study relative to a particular topic. How could um, we take into account the findings of your study? So that in itself is also inspiring to know that people have used the study to inspire their own research agenda. And like working in higher education, that has been very important to me because like I said, I teach teachers, I always tell persons, I plan to see that impact generations because teacher teach teachers who teach students who teach and the world continues to grow. But it's that foundational knowledge that's so critical. And so the study is almost starting a planting a seed. It's planting a seed of understanding what happened. It's planting a seed of thinking about preliminary recommendation. It's planting a seed as to what could be. And this is where persons have to think about what could they do to water it and help it grow and really think about creating a garden that supports diverse individuals, particularly in the St. Petersburg area. Well, the timing for the study might be particularly fortunate because, uh, as you all know, as you just mentioned, St. Pete has its first black mayor, Ken Welch, just took office. Uh, he's a guy who grew up in the gas plant area, which was uh, bulldozed by uh, the construction of the interstate and Tropicana Field. So you have an ear here. Uh, how do you think him being in office will influence the city council to put these recommendations that you all have worked on into action? 
I also grew up in the gas plant area. Um, that was my early childhood and some of my fond memories. And we actually hosted a reunion on December 12th, a gas plant Laurel Park reunion to bring people together. I think this is a, a wonderful time for us as it relates to the study, having our first Black mayor. It is also very important that we understand that sometimes people of color have more difficulty in advancing issues of race and race equity because it is so easy to call the race card. We saw that with President Obama. And so a lot of times white people step back, but white people are very important in advancing this race equity agenda. And sometimes they are much more successful because the race card cannot be played. That does not undermine what um, Mayor Welch will be able to do. And I'm sure we, we feel very positive that he will put a lot of effort into this because this has been a part of her, his reality. But we cannot sit back and think because we have a Black mayor, he can do it all. No, he cannot. He needs us, us being the community, the community meaning every person, regardless of race and ethnicity. We need those people who believe in this to support him as he advances our recommendations and advances the efforts in this community. He cannot do it alone. I would imagine that the aim of this is much wider than just the city of St. Petersburg, right? City of Tampa is having a similar conversation about system, systemic racism. Do you know where they're at in the process? And do you believe that what you're doing here will have a much greater impact on just the city alone? Absolutely. I know the city of Tampa is actually trying to schedule a meeting with different faculty of the university currently. So they are making strides to move forward and really reflect on efforts to amplify it. But nationally, I think the study is also getting traction because it's, it was innovative. It, it really, really tied this construct of structural racism across various disciplines, but it also tied it to the history itself. So there were many avenues that was um, novel in the design and also the collaboration where we brought scholars across from um, academics as well as the community partners, as well as advocates. Um, that in itself was a bold statement because we realized all voices need to be the table if we are truly to capture a study that is descriptive, informative, reflective, but also visionary going forward. And I think that is also something that was um, innovative. Ms. Gwen also made a good point relative to the goals itself and really bringing people together and going beyond just, you know, speaking to the choir. That was also something that's different in this study because it created a space where persons can start thinking about what is happening in their communities. How do they um, reflect and or challenge similarities and potential differences? And, you know, because like when we think about this notion of justice, this is a case of racial justice, but justice and equity can vary pending one positionality. And so that is something for someone to think about, too. How could they scale it up and make it relevant to their spaces? In order for this not to end up on a dusty shelf like many studies have before, Gwen, if you could tell our listeners where they can find the study. Well, I will tell you one place, and that's the city website, um, and that's uh, stpete.org. And then uh, Dr. Sears will tell you of the other site. Yeah, so we have the project website and we also place it on the USF library. And so we have it for open source so persons can download it and it's accessible there. 
And I think many news articles also linked it to the city's site. So persons can actually connect various news articles about the study and see um, how to access the information also highlights. We also had videos that highlighted key findings when we presented it to um, representatives of the electoral body and legislation and community citizens. And Steve, there's some contact information, I think, connected with each of these sites. And so if people want to know more, if people want to have a conversation or a study group or whatever, they can reach out and we will do our best to work with them. All right. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to finish our conversation here with just some final thoughts by, by both of you all about your hopes, desires, what's going to happen from, from this report coming out. Uh, Dr. Sears? Well, I am hopeful that the recommendations are enacted sooner rather than later. I do believe having an established change dashboard to monitor progress is critical. So where we start to think about what has been done, what needs to be done, reflecting on the extent that individuals are provided sufficient support to get started is going to be key. So we need to think about um, grants and perhaps um, initiatives to inspire, enlighten, and educate individuals of how they can move their work forward. Additionally, I am hopeful that we can um, improve the various elements of the study from issues relative to health, education, housing, economics, and the criminal legal system. So this goes against to really using data to inform changes and also really thinking about opportunities for networks. Because when we think about, um, it was proposed relative to establishing a racial equity commission like the African-American Quality of Life Sunshine Committee that brings together diverse individuals, but really thinking about not just one committee as an end-all, be-all checklist, like an add-on, but really thinking about creating networks or research action clusters or network improvement communities that is targeting different elements and working collaboratively as a community-based initiative to move that work forward. I think that in itself will be encouraging. And as an educator, I'm always um, excited to see improvement in test scores and also educational growth and also um, success rates and graduation rates. So really looking at that data as well carefully to promote um, the betterment of all individuals. So to me, I am hopeful that change is coming. I am hopeful that we are creating a better tomorrow. And I'm hopeful that we can learn to live as one in a united um, area and also support the well-being of everyone present. So from a humanistic perspective, promoting the betterment of humanity. I am a realistic optimist. So on the realistic part, it's taken us, we're, we're 400 years. This is not something that started last year. We are 400 years in this, in this um, process. But on the optimistic part, I am hopeful because the study and the recommendations provide a blueprint. And we know that you can hardly start off on a project if you don't have a plan or a blueprint. So the study is the blueprint. I'm very optimistic about the commission that Dr. Sears spoke of the quality of life, African-American, and the Office of Equity or the Equity Officer, I can't remember which. I think those are very important steps to take. We cannot have a plan or have a goal if there's no way to actually uh, monitor that. 
And so I think that's very important. I am optimistic because St. Petersburg, what we have done here is very courageous and innovative. To answer your other question, yes, I see this um, going way beyond the city of St. Pete and other cities employing uh, this particular strategy. So I'm hopeful because a few years ago, or maybe even a few years ago, this could not and would not have happened. So for the mere fact that we have this study gives me hope. Well, everything starts with hope and uh, it goes on from there. So uh, Dr. Ruth May Sears and Gwen Reese, thank you very much for being on Florida Matters. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And that's it for today's show. I'd like to thank all the authors and participants in the new study of structural racism in St. Petersburg. You can find links to the study and stories about it on our webpage, wusfnews.org. And thanks as always to our producer, Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. We'll catch you next week on our next edition of Florida Matters.